Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast for the issue December the 23rd to January the 5th. It's our Christmas double issue and our last podcast of 2006. Coming up, medicine and creativity. We'll be talking to the editors at the Lancet who put this year's special issue together. But first, one of the main articles in this double issue concerns pandemic influenza. Authors of this research article assessed the 1918 to 1920 influenza pandemic, and by extrapolation, they proposed that over 62 million people would die in a future influenza pandemic. Earlier, I spoke to Chris Murray. He's a professor of public policy at Harvard University in the United States. Professor Murray, can you begin, please, by telling us what really the impetus was for your research in terms of anticipating the mortality extent of a future pandemic influenza epidemic? Well, it began with uh, my colleagues and I sitting in a meeting, listening to, or several meetings, listening to claims about the potential mortality from a pandemic uh, of influenza. And these claims ranging from 100 million or 50 million deaths up into, in fact, one claim up to a billion deaths. And reflecting that, in fact, as far as we knew, there hadn't been any systematic attempt to uh, quantify what had been the impact in the major pandemics in the 20th century. And that triggered us to actually try to hunt this down. And the way you did that was by doing a very careful analysis of the 1918 to 20 influenza epidemic and then extrapolating from that with an estimate for 2004. That's right. In fact, if you look back at the 20th century, there were three major pandemics, the 1918 to 20 pandemic. Then there was the 1957-58 pandemic, and then there was the 68-70 pandemic. We started out by wanting to look at all three. It turns out the latter two weren't big enough in the sense of large enough mortality to really stick out in the mortality data around the world. So we focused our attention on a careful analysis of what we could prove happened in 1918 to 20. And you talk about the importance of vital registration data for the 1918 to 20 pandemic to help shape your analysis for for a future projection. What do you mean by vital registration and what kind of countries did you have that data for? Well, that's a key question, which is how do we know when people die? And in high-income countries in the world today, there is legally mandated requirements that every birth and death gets registered in a vital statistics system. And in fact, there's all sorts of reasons why people register deaths. You can't get a burial certificate. Hospitals and providers are are legally required to. These systems started as far back as 250 years ago in Sweden and started to be phased in in the 19th century in a number of developed countries. And a number of colonial administrations also had these vital registration systems. So if we looked back to 1918, there were quite a number of both developed and developing countries where nearly all deaths were being registered uh, by the government. And there's a little irony in that, which is that some of the countries for which we have good data in 1918 to 20 are countries that today don't have good vital registration systems. But given that, we systematically reviewed everything that's available at that time period 
and came up with a range of Western European countries, North America, Australia, New Zealand, and a number of developing countries, uh, places like the Philippines, Taiwan, Sri Lanka, India actually had good registration system data at the time, and a few others that allowed us to look at mortality patterns using this quite rigorous type of data which where every death and every time period is being recorded by age and sex. And in terms of 1918 to 20, what's the actual total mortality figure that is thought to be attributed to the flu pandemic during that period? Well, our approach to this was to not uh, look at the deaths that were being assigned to flu in 1918 to 20 because there was huge variation in how people go about assigning the cause of death on death certificates. But rather, what we did is looked at how much of an increase in mortality there was during the pandemic compared to adjacent time periods, either before the pandemic and after. And so we actually go about computing in a consistent way excess mortality that can be attributed to the pandemic. And that ranged enormously from uh, as low as 0.2% of the entire population dying from the pandemic in Denmark to as high as 4.4% of the entire population of India dying during the pandemic. And then even within India, there was huge variation by province so that the worst that we know, the worst documented case, was 7.8% of the entire population dying in the central and Berar province of India, of, of, of British India at the time. To put that in context, mortality around the world today, 1% of the world's population dies approximately in a year. So in other words, in India, mortality was going up four to five-fold in a, in a one-year period from the pandemic. So how do we go from the analysis of 1918 to 20 to coming up with a projection for a future pandemic should it strike? The way we went about doing that was, first, we looked for explanations for the enormous variation across communities in the 1918 to 20 pandemic, because you have this almost 40-fold variation from Denmark at the low end to central province of India at the high end. So the first question is why? And we turned out that a very simple number or simple attribute of societies explained a lot of that variation, and that was namely poverty or income per capita. So there was a very strong relationship across countries at the time between mortality from the pandemic and socioeconomic status or, or as measured by income. And we took that relationship and then said, well, if we apply the relationship we observed between mortality and income in 1918 to 2004 and take into account the change in age structure, because the pandemic in 1918 had particularly high mortality in young adults, if we take those factors into account, what would mortality look like today or in 2004 if those relationships were still to hold true? Now, we can discuss as to whether that's a plausible argument that the, those relationships would still hold, but that's how we came up with our figure of 62 million deaths as a, a median projection and a range that goes from 51 million up to 80 million as the you know, uncertainty range about what a pandemic might look like. Indeed, 62 million, as you say, is your median figure there, and you also conclude that 96% of that mortality would be in low-income settings or developing countries. Is that the same proportion in terms of 
richer countries to poor countries compared with how it was in 1918 to 20? Well, the reason that it's going to be more concentrated in developing countries uh, is twofold. First, compared to 1918, uh, the population growth in the developing world has been enormous in the last hundred years. And so the composition of the world's population between the countries that are had lower mortality, Western Europe, North America, Australia, New Zealand, compared to the rest uh, has changed rather dramatically towards the developing world. And there's this very strong relationship between income and mortality. And since the high-income countries of today are much wealthier than they were back in 1918, if that relationship were to hold true, we would expect much higher mortality in the developing world and there's much more population there. So what's happened is the pandemic flu in 1918, which was you know, affecting everybody, today would overwhelmingly affect uh, the developing world. And how do the projections for a future pandemic take into account factors like the burden of HIV prevalence that we have now in the modern world and, and on the other hand, the availability of things like flu vaccinations and, and treatments actually for influenza itself? The question that we answer in this or ask and try to answer in this paper is what would mortality be if the virus that was around in 1918 appeared today? Because, of course, we don't know if, if it will and what type of virus would, will appear in, in the next flu pandemic. And we take the relationship between income per capita back then and mortality. And so the richer countries today are projected to have lower mortality than they did back in 1918 because they're much wealthier. Now, part of that relationship back in 1918 is mostly mediated by non uh, pharmacological and non-public health factors because there wasn't a lot available at the time. So one should see the 62 million uh, figure and the range as essentially the upper limit as to what might happen if that virus reemerged because there's a number of factors that would mediate that uh, relationship. You mentioned some. Certainly symptomatic medical management may have an effect antivirals either as a, you know, reducing transmission or reducing case fatality may have an effect. Uh, we don't know exactly how much. In some parts of the high-income world, vaccination strategies might help. But, of course, there's a big issue there of if, how quickly they can be deployed and how much of the mortality would be in the very first wave of the pandemic. And finally, the role of antibiotics to reduce mortality from secondary bacterial pneumonia could also be important. Now, the, the net effect of those, we would hypothesize, would be to lower probably the estimated mortality, the 4% of the 62 million deaths that we've uh, forecasted in the high-income world by some significant factor. But how much reduction there would be in the developing world would be much smaller. I think it's safe to say that. And we have no idea which of those strategies are actually going to be feasible to particularly reach the half of the developing world that, that's particularly has low access to health care and is particularly poor. So in, in a, the way to view these is, is the sort of setting the upper limit as to what a pandemic might do, but recognize that the gradient across countries is probably going to be worse in terms of the developing countries having higher 
even higher relative mortality because most of the things that we have to offer for pandemic flu will be much more likely to be used in the high-income world. And finally, Professor Murray, the research article here in our December the 23rd to 30th issue, how should or how can this influence public health? Well, my take from this is that while the world has paid a lot of attention to avian flu and the risk of a new influenza pandemic, and there's been a a, a remarkably concerted response amongst high-income countries, serious attention from WHO and even other parts of the United Nations, there has not been very much focus on what's practical and feasible for low-income and lower-middle-income countries where most of the potential mortality will be. And so I think the public health message here is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. We need to think of strategies that might work in these poorest settings. It doesn't seem likely that vaccination strategies are going to ever reach the poorest communities in a a time frame that would be beneficial. So what's available and what can be done? And that needs more attention. I mean, I think there's ideas out there, you know, certainly given the experience with trying to get antibiotics for childhood pneumonia into the periphery through things like integrated management of childhood illness, the idea of treating secondary bacterial pneumonia with antibiotics, that's a possibility needs attention. There have been suggestions, and I don't think anyone's worked through this carefully, that new conjugate pneumococcal vaccination might be a way to potentially reduce future burden. And as these are now becoming a possibility in the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations, actually talking about rolling out uh, conjugate pneumococcal vaccine, that there's suddenly potential ideas that deserve uh, further scrutiny. So my main message, or our main message from this piece, is that you have to look at this problem from where most of the burden and the harm is going to be and think of strategies that will benefit those populations. Professor Murray, thank you very much for talking to The Lancet. Oh, my pleasure. This year's Lancet special issue is Medicine and Creativity. Here's my colleague Oda Riska talking to the editors behind the special issue, Pia Pini and Ros Osmond. How did you come up with the theme of medicine and creativity and what sort of topics and stories did you envisage could be included in this theme? This year, the Lancet team suggested so many ideas for the special issue that the title Medicine and Creativity really suggested itself. And that is why there is such a broad range of topics, encompassing not just the usual definition of, say, writing and healing or the marriage of art and science, or even using art to teach both doctors and patients about health. There is also creativity in other areas, such as the way physicians have to overcome difficult circumstances, for example, treating injury on the side of a mountain, or the creativity of researchers when they reach that elusive breakthrough. And then, of course, there is creativity in its literal sense, the repair of the human body after disease or mutilation. And for the first time, we have a play scene. Ros? Yes, that's on creation of life, really. I came up with this idea after seeing another play by Professor Carl Gerassi at a local theatre on a, a related topic, and I thought he would have interesting perspectives for this issue. And indeed he did. When I asked him if he'd like to write an essay, he said he would much rather submit a new scene from a play. And that's what we have, raising questions about fertility and when women may decide to postpone having children 
because they can, storing embryos or, or eggs for the future. And we have some actors reading through the play also available on the website now. And we also have a personal account on how IVF changed the life of at least one person. Both in terms of topics and geography, this is a very varied issue. How did you find the stories to include and were there any that were particularly difficult? It is very varied, as you say, but in fact it wasn't difficult because the team here had came up with so many different ideas of topics, but then they also seemed to be informed on people to write them. So basically we as editors gratefully received all the contributions without much difficulty at all. And the the whole thing is illustrated really nicely. We have some marvellous pictures, which I think enhance the whole thing. And what are some of the highlights of the issue as you see it? Do you have any personal favourites? One of my favourites is the essay on hospital clowns by Peter Spitzer, co-founder of the Humour Foundation charity. He notes that clowning in hospitals to bring play, humour and laughter to patients and family members and staff in fact has a long history. Apparently in Turkey several centuries ago, the dervishes, who were responsible for the well-being of patients, used their performance skills to, as Spitzer puts it, feed the soul. He describes the typical day in the life of a modern-day clown doctor. He himself works as Dr. Fruit Loop, and he describes the silly clothes, oversized shoes and outrageous props, and of course the big red nose. And instead of ward rounds, there are clown rounds, in which he gives laughter prescriptions checks funny bones and does red nose transplants. No fixed routine, just a lot of improvisation. Sounds really fun. Spitzer sums it up nicely when he says, Clown doctors remind us of so many things. To take our work seriously, but ourselves lightly. The value of a smile and a laugh. That it is okay to take a minute to play. As medical practitioners, we can, beneficially, incorporate appropriate laughter and play as brief interventions in our clinical practice. I do. Take the risk and enjoy letting your inner clown emerge. One of my favourites is called The Miracle Boat. This is a way of providing rehabilitation services to disabled people in very remote areas of the Philippines on outlying islands. A boat was developed and set up to provide artificial limbs in situ on each island, changing lives. And another one was the interview with the Nobel Prize winners Robin Warren and Barry Marshall by Ruth Richardson, which I think demonstrates incredible creativity and bravery in research. One of my favourite pieces is The Lifeline by Ken Arnold, who, when asked, what was your first experiment as a child, answered, seeing what colour my pea turned when I ate beetroots. That's great, isn't it? (laughs) That concludes this week's podcast and our podcasts for 2006. Thank you all for listening throughout the year. We now have a regular audience of over 6,000 listeners, which is fantastic. And we look forward to talking to you next year. Season's greetings from everyone at The Lancet.